0: Hey, it's Sam from When Belief Dies. So you're about to listen to the conversation I just had with Professor Michael Ruse. I wanted to speak to Professor Ruse for a long time and you're gonna see right from the get-go that he doesn't let up, he just goes, goes, goes and it's an absolutely fantastic conversation and I hope you can see the vulnerability and honesty that Professor Ruse comes to this conversation with as he shares about his life, his ideas, his thoughts, his work and yeah, really openly and honestly talks about kind of, what it's like for someone like me to lose their faith, and how different it was for him and his experience. Anyway, this is a fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy the roller coaster, but good luck. Jesus Christ, I hate technology. <laughs> Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. Hey, listen, I want to ask you to do two things. The first one is Would you go over to Apple Podcasts, search for When Belief Dies, and leave us a five star rating and review? Every rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps to boost the visibility, and we want listeners like you to be able to find this show. The second thing is Would you consider supporting this show on Patreon? This show will always be an ad free place, but your support on Patreon will enable us to do more and more over the coming years. So have a think And if you can, support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode.
1: Unlike you, Dick, there isn't one size fits all. (laughs) That's it. Now, hold on. Hold on. Ah, here we go. Let me take my glasses off so I can. Ah, okay. Can you hear me?
0: I can. Can you hear me? Okay.
1: No, I can't hear you. Hold on. Now, can I hear you?
0: One two. Can you hear me? All right.
1: Yes, I can hear you now, Sam. Okay, got you.
0: Fantastic. How 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 are you doing?
1: Fine. I thought you were hairy. You obviously you cover your baldness with your toque, don't you?
0: Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, definitely have to try and keep the uh, keep keep the sun off most of the time.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Where are you from?
0: Um, so I'm currently living in Halifax in West Yorkshire. Um, I
1: know Halifax. I've got a. A sister who lives in Huddersfield, oh, and her nice. husband was the, I don't know, the county social worker out of Halifax. So I know Halifax.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: I, I used to live in the West Riding, in, just outside Pontefract in the nineteen I went to boarding school in York. So I, I'm i not a native northerner. I was born in the Midlands, but I—you know my teenage years were
0: spent in Yorkshire. Wow. Okay, so you, so you know it pretty well. So
1: what are you doing in Halifax? What the hell does one do in Halifax?
0: Not a lot, really. Walking. Um, sometimes we see the odd deer. And that's about it, really. Um, old, okay. old, old Victorian mills that are now falling, falling down. Sadly. Um, yeah. I actually work over at um, over at Leeds University. I I, um, I work in the IT department over there. Um, so yeah. In the what? Oh, okay. In the IT department. Yeah. So I, I deal with all the technology yep. that, that that you hate, um, which is fair enough.
1: Okay. That's fine. All right. So what what do you want to do today then?
0: Yeah, um I basically wanted to just kind of um get a bit of your story and talk to you about um atheism, agnosticism, Christianity and the sort of different um different views you have compared to say the new atheists or um people who have kind All of right. that sort of idea if that's okay with
1: okay. you. Okay. Okay, I got you now. Well, okay, let's start at the beginning. I was born in 1940 on June the 21st, I think a day or two after France collapsed when the invasion of Germany. Uh, I was born in the Midlands. I was born in Birmingham. Uh, and My parents were, were young. My father was, I don't know, a driver. I think he'd been a cab driver. But for whatever reason, he decided to be a conscientious objector at the beginning of the First, Second World War. He said it was he was very left-wing. And of course, the Hitler... Um, you know, Stalin pack. But my feeling is a lot of it was Oedipal. His own father was a professional soldier in the first world war who had been, uh, discharged because he was gassed on the Somme. and never went back to his family. And I've often felt that my father was busy, you know, giving the, well, you do the B sign, uh, to his, to his father. Anyhow, my father was a conscientious objector, but he wasn't, you know, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, just sat down and wouldn't do anything. He worked with the Italian prisoners of war. And, of course, being a conscientious objector meant he came into contact with Quakers, because Quakers are pacifists. Mm. And after the war, he and my mother joined the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers. And it was within that religion that I grew up, and my sister and I. And uh, so I grew up as a Quaker and in the Midlands, the Used to go to a lot of summer camps and that sort of thing. Uh, I went, to, But then I, the Ruth's fortunes changed and I went away to boarding school in York, Bootham School, York, which is a Quaker school. And okay. I spent five, five years there. Uh, and then I spent three years doing a, a very unsuccessful degree at mathematics at Bristol. Uh, I don't know what it's like these days, but in those days, you had to make a decision on what you were going to do at the age of 16. And, you know, you dropped everything else. Well, yeah, I was good at high school math. But, you know, the second day at university, I realized I was, you know, I couldn't do it. And uh, but I eventually found philosophy. So I I got some philosophy. And then in 1962, you know, again, hardly what you'd call a directive sort of life. Uh, I got an offer of a scholarship in Canada. and I went there and I ended up living in Canada and staying there until 19 till 2000 when I went came down here. Wow. Um, so, as I say, I grew up as a Quaker, and I, Quakers are, you know, on the one hand, Quakers don't have any ministers or, or churches, and they don't have any dogmas. So, in other words, you don't have to, you know, I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and all of this sort of thing. Mm. Uh, however, certainly in those days, it would have been very uh, untrue to say Quakers had no strong beliefs. And I, I, you know, I hear things about Quakers these days but in our day we were certainly we were certainly theist, believed in the existence of God uh, the God of the of the Bible and we were certainly uh, christological in the sense that we believed that Jesus was the Son of God in the I mean I, I later learned things like you know substitutionally atonement that Christ died on the cross for our sins you know blood sacrifice uh, I, I found that repellent, then as soon as I heard about it, I find it repellent now. i was never taught anything like that. Uh, but uh, the, the fact is, I, I would say until 20 or 21, I was a fairly committed Christian. Now, you know, at, at boarding school, I had to go to church, well, meeting as they call it on Sundays, twice actually. So, you know, it was part of my life. But the interesting thing is when I got to university, I basically went to meeting, I don't know, maybe I was so hung up, hung over on Sunday mornings, but for whatever reason, I just didn't. And I don't know, about the time I went to Canada, What when I was 22, I just discovered that my faith went. Um, it, I, I like to say it wasn't like a uh, Saul on the road to Damascus experience in reverse. I didn't suddenly say, ah, now I see, or something like that. Yeah. It was like, you know, the Lewis Carroll poem, you know, hunting of the snark, softly and silently vanished away because the snark was a bosium, you see. And I just discovered that I didn't believe, you know, just didn't. I suppose in the 20s, I would probably have been described as fairly atheistic. I, you know, I'd read some Bertrand Russell and some T- Anthony Flew, but I, I can't honestly say that it was a matter of, of, overriding importance to me. I mean, no, I mean, I I taught philosophy of religion, but I had no trouble, you know, dealing with the arguments for the existence of God and that sort of thing. I I certainly didn't feel any need in class to proselytize or anything like that. Uh, So basically, that was my, I suppose then, if you'd asked me, you know, by the 30s, I would have said agnostic, but it was probably more of a placeholder, you know, for really not giving a flying fuck, than for um, to use a technical philosophical expression, <laughs> uh, than for uh, feeling particularly strongly about it. Um, anyhow, uh, then what happened was searching for a PhD thesis topic, as you call it. I mean, over here they call them dissertations. I uh, well, I don't. Have you have you done a PhD? No, not so. No, OK. Well, if you talk to somebody who's done a PhD and ask them why they chose the topic they did, the usual answer you'll get, or at least the honest answer you'll get, is that you're looking for a field that not too much work has been done in it, and the work that's been done is not very good. I mean, you know, there's no good doing a dissertation, let's say, or thesis on Aristotle on ethics or human causation because the, the literature is vast. Well, biology had been basically uh, ignored, and so I—I I started. I'd never done biology in school. I mean, you know, but bi- I mean, I used to laugh and say, "Well, biology." Uh, there were certain subjects that were for what they called late developers. That meant kids who were as thick as two short planks uh, nailed together, or girls. You know, there was uh, geography, woodwork, Spanish, and biology, and those. You know, if you're bright, you did math, physics, chemistry. If you're really bright, you did Latin and Greek. <laughs> you know? so uh, and I joke about it, but it's not un- it's not entirely untrue. Uh, but anyhow, um, I-, I I started reading about evolutionary theory. I mean, still, I've never never done it. Be- you know, I've never d- been in a lab in my life, and never had any desire to be one. I mean, anyhow, I, I did this, and of course, it took me into contact with Darwin, particularly because. In those days, Thomas Kuhn was very popular. And uh, Kuhn was saying, you've got to go back and look at the history of science. And I really like that. I mean, I like, I like Victoriana. I mean, I'm very keen on the novels of Dickens and that sort of thing. Gilbert and Sullivan. And uh, also, you know, I, I spent the summer between school and university in London and really fell in love with Victorian architecture, particularly St. Pancras. Which, of course, in those days they were planning on knocking down. Now, of course, it's the Euro Hub, and you know it's one of the glories of London. Hmm. But believe it or not, in 1960, it had to have the poet laureate John Betchman, you know, to mount a campaign to stop it being knocked down. So, you know, doing so, doing Darwin and that sort of thing, really interested me. In fact, my first sabbatical, which I spent at Cambridge, I spent in the, um, I spent in the. Uh, university library in the, in the Darwin archives. Now, now they're all online. So you wouldn't need to go there, but in those days you could hold the things in your hands. And um, what happened then by the end of the seventies, it turned out in America, and don't forget I was living in Canada, but I knew quite, I mean, you know, if you do philosophy in North America, you, you're in and out of, of, of America all the time. So it's not like, you know, it, I mean, it's not like there was any barrier between what we would do on the, on the two sides of the, um, the border and the American creationists or the fundamentalists as we used to call them the biblical literalists by the end of the seventies were having a lot of success, pushing their ideas in debates and that sort of thing. Now, just to double back the, the fundamentalists, the, Biblical literalists had been very powerful at the beginning of the century and right up, you know, through the 1920s. But then then they sort of went into, what shall I say, dormancy, if you like. And what happened in 1957 was that the the, um, Russians put up Sputnik, you know, the thing going around. And it scared the shit out of America because Hmm. the Russians had done it and the Americans hadn't. And I've actually looked at the front page of the New York Times the day after Sputnik went up. And there's a great big article right in the middle page, middle of the page, on the front page saying, you know, the problem is we've been let down by science education. We don't have enough good scientists coming through because American scientific education is, is the pits. And to be honest, it was. But of course, one thing about America, at least in those days, was they pulled their finger out and got on with it, and um, so they started produce, producing textbooks. Now, the interesting thing is, in America, it's the states which have control over education, not the federal government. However, they're looking for textbooks because you know. And so, what the federal government did very cleverly was to subsidise the writing of textbooks, which could then go through the textbook manufacturers. I mean, you know, free enterprise, but of course these were really good textbooks and dirt cheap. And so of course all States wanted them. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was their decision, but, and they were buying them from private companies. They weren't buying them from the government, but they were in fact getting, you know, much better quality science education. And, uh, I've even got one on the shelf. Hold on. And so this is the biological sciences curriculum study, Molecules to Men. And so this was a a textbook that they put out, which was dirt cheap, and which um, you know would then be bought by school boards and everything across the country. And naturally enough, there's a you can't see it, but there's a there's a chapter, uh, the means of evolution, and it's the idea of evolution before Charles Darwin. Lamarck explains evolution. Darwin's theory of the means of evolution, uh, and so on and so. Forth. In other words it contains evolution right down the line. Wow. So of course the fundamentalists, the evangelicals, saw this and they shit their pants. And so they then brought out their own book, Genesis Flood, by, um, what was it, uh, uh, Henry Morris was one, and oh yes, John Wycliffe and Henry Morris. Well, they got into arguments and debates and uh, uh, with scientists. And of course the scientists are not used to debating. And so they get up there and the scientists would have their 15 minutes and they, you know, they probably only got to, you know, hadn't even got to evolution at the end of 15 minutes because they were used to, you know, 39 hours of lecturing. And suddenly, boom, oh, but I haven't got to Darwin yet, too late, you know. <laughs> well, of course, I, I, I was a philosopher and of course I, I'd spent by then 15 years teaching undergraduates, so I got a pretty good idea of how to do it. And then in 1981, the state of Arkansas passed a law saying that if you're going to teach evolution in the schools, you also had to teach, quote, creation science, which was Genesis taken literally. And so there was a court case with the American civil liberties union, um, you know, saying that this is unconstitutional separation of church and state violation of the first amendment. And they got a number of of expert witnesses, including, for instance, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, the paleontologist, popular writer. Ever since Darwin, chap, which is interesting because you know here was I uh, from Canada, uh, not an American or anything like that, uh, I, not at a particularly distinguished university, but you know I was the person they needed, and I did it. And uh, so I started then, you know, to get more interested in the topic. Up to that point, I'd done quite a bit of stuff on Darwin, and naturally, if you're going to do the Darwinian revolution, you have to talk about religion. But I can't honestly say that I was ever talking about religion in the sense of something that meant much to me. It was more history of ideas. What did Darwin think? What did the Bishop of Oxford think? Was he really as as stupid as Thomas Henry Huxley said he was? And uh, all of those, in other words, you know, tracing history of ideas without uh, being personally uh, emotionally involved in it. because. It, At a certain level, you know, you're taught as a professional historian not to get emotionally involved in this. I mean, you know, the worst thing you can do is write a book on somebody that you care about. So um, but after the after the debate, I got more and more involved because people would ask me to come. And I mean, we weren't doing this sort of thing in those days, but people would ask me to come and give talks or appear on radio programs uh, and that sort of thing. and, And I did. And so I I started to get a lot more interested in it, and uh, yeah, when I get interested in something, I write a book about it. Um, well, let me again show you something and give you an idea. Those are all books, all books that I've written. So there you go. Wow. I mean, I've done over sixty now. Um, Yeah. But anyhow, so as I was saying, I got more and more interested in it, and I suppose. I suppose I I started to think then a little more deeply about where I was at. And of course this was early, uh, early 2000, really I started getting interested before the new atheists appeared on the scene. I knew, for instance, I knew Richard Dawkins personally because, you know, I was, he was an evolutionist and by that time uh, I was fairly well known in those circles and would meet them and and, and quite a bit like that. I presume I knew he was an atheist, but I never quite knew that he, would. but of course in the middle sixties, then of course, it all started to come out and, you know, the God delusion and, you know, and, uh, all of these sorts of books, um, beyond the faith and, you know, uh, and, and these sorts of things, uh, I suppose though, even by that stage, I was realizing, well, I, I don't think I'd ever been a militant atheist. I mean, for a start, if you grow up as a Quaker, it's very hard to hate Christianity. I mean, you know, I mean, I've I mean, I've heard particularly friends who've grown up as Catholics who say, the day I was able not to go to church, I didn't. From then on, I never went, and I'm so glad, and I never want to go again. I, you know, I hate it, but I, I'm happiest if I don't even think about it. Um, well, you know, if you're a Quaker, you don't feel that way. I mean, I mean, I, I think I've, as a Quaker, I never much cared for organized religion because Quakers don't have ministers or churches or that sort of thing. And so I'd always been, a, or dogmas or that sort of thing. So I'd always been a bit put off by, you know, you must believe this sort of thing in order to, you know, be a faithful and you And the other thing is I, yeah, I, I'm like my father, I've got Oedipal problems, I don't like headmasters, I don't like university administrators, and uh, I I would not function well with a priest or a pastor telling me what I've got to believe. I mean, I don't mind debating it with somebody and that sort of thing, but I'm not going to have them tell him. But of course, that's the thing about Quakerism. I mean, when I grew up, the older Quakers, friends as they were called, uh, would certainly tell you things and argue, uh, lay things down for you and, and try to guide you certain ways, but there were never ever any sense of coercion. There was never ever any sense of, well, if you don't believe this, you're not a good person. I mean, Quakers are pacifists, but I don't know that I was ever not a pacifist. But at my school, there were kids who would argue quite strongly in favor of war. I don't believe, I don't think they ever really believed it. but. Um, you know, I mean, that's the thing about Quakerism is that it, it, it it's much it, you don't lay the law down, particularly not for others. I mean, obviously, if you believe certain things, like if you believe that you know abortion is is wrong and homosexuality is wrong, you probably not be really feel very comfortable with Quakers, uh, particularly not in this day and age. Um, but uh, so, I mean, for obvious reasons, you know, you like attracts alike, but. Um, it, it, that's the thing. I've, and so I've never been at all attracted to any kind of, uh, what shall I say, formal religion. And in fact, you know, living down here amongst the evangelicals, I'm even less inclined to be attracted to that sort of thing. And of course, you know, these days, of course, we've got all the stuff about the Catholic clergy and, you know, little boys. Although, you know, back in the 1950s, the news of the world used to tell us lots about Anglican clergymen or Boy Scoutmasters are little boys anyway. So it wasn't entirely a shock, although anybody who thinks that you can make somebody give up sex at at 18 and then put them in a position of authority by the time they're 25 and think nothing is going to happen is really pretty naive. They don't understand much about human nature. I mean, really. And so although I don't condone the priests who do it, I can't altogether condemn them. I'm much more inclined to condemn, you know, the cardinals in the Catholic church. But anyhow, so um, as I say, I, I would never, I don't, I certainly wasn't in any sense an ardent new atheist type. And I suppose even then, if you push me, I would have been more of a, a an agnostic or a skeptic. I mean, you know, I'm a philosopher. And, you know, to a great extent, that's what philosophers do. I mean, I, uh, yeah, of course we believe certain things. Of course we do. But by and large, philosophers are always in the business of arguing. And uh, there's all, I mean, you take the body-mind problem. What is mind? Well, you know, you you ask six philosophers and like they say, you know, you ask you ask two Jews for an idea and you get three opinions. Well, you ask five philosophers about the body-mind problem and you're probably going to get at least 10 alternatives. <laughs> but the point is, I think even most of us say, if you're a, let's say, if you're interested in the body mind problem and you're a materialist, I think most of us would say, yes, I really think materialism works. Yeah, but you know, 10%, 20% chance I could be wrong. I mean, that's, 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 you know, that's the nature of what we do. We're not physicists. I mean, it's not, you know, we don't. we don't have two plus two equals four and not five. I mean, it doesn't mean to say we're wishy-washy by any means, because I think you can take, you know, a number of very strong stands as a philosopher. And I think you can, you know, you can argue certain things in a very important way. But also I would say you're arguing things about things which people have to argue about anyway. So at least let's try to do it as well as we can. I mean, you know, some of these problems, Going to go away? Like, you know, should we go to war? Is war ever justified, for instance? Or uh, what about free speech? Or what about, you know, should somebody be allowed to do this, that, or the other in public? Um, so, as I say, uh, I, I, I guess I was more of an agnostic even then. And then, of course, the new atheists came along. And, you know, by the nature of the game, I mean, we philosophers love something particularly if we can disagree with it because it, you know, it gives us something to write about. And <laughs> so, and naturally enough, you know, being there, I say a fairly prominent Darwinian by them. And I'd written on the body on, on science and religion. So I, I tended to get sucked into either debates or writing reviews or that sort of thing. And, and you know, by and large, I, I, I I remained on pretty friendly terms with the new atheists. I mean, I certainly with somebody like Dan Dennett, you know, perfectly comfortable. I mean, you know, if, if Dan came to town or something, I mean, I would certainly expect him either to come here or go out and have a a meal or something. I think I would, with Richard Dawkins too. I mean, you know, that's, we don't have that kind of, you know, (laughs) difference. Um, so, uh, but as I'd say it was very definitely the case that I was not with the new atheists. I, 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 I guess it's the thing is I don't like dogmatism, whether it's the new atheists on the one hand or the creation scientists on the other. I'm always a bit, I'm always doubtful about people who've got the truth. I mean, I mean that doesn't mean I'm wishy-washy. It certainly doesn't. But I'm always doubtful about people who've got a cause. And they know that this is the right thing. I mean, you know, growing up, you know, in the Quaker atmosphere that I did, you know, I met a lot of people like that. I mean, people who said, oh, yes, the whole solution is get rid of this or do that or do the other. And uh, even from an early age, I used to think, you know, life isn't quite as simple as that. You can't reduce it all to, you know, as long as we, you know, provide meals for kids in, in In Uganda, everything's going to be solved or something like that. I mean, it doesn't mean to say you shouldn't provide meals for kids in Uganda. But I think it's a bit daft to say all you need to do in this life is provide. You know, it doesn't work that way. So, as I say, I I guess my at least part of my opposition to the new atheists was more an instinctive dislike. Of, of enthusiasm, you know. In a way, I ought to have been an Anglican because, you know, by and large, Anglicans don't like enthusiasm. That reminds them too much of the Methodists and that sort of thing. You know, <laughs> you know, hearty singing and all, you know, holding hands and singing "Come by Ya." You know, hmm. I, that's not my style. And uh, I, I, you know, when the, the, the new atheists have Darwin Day, you know, Darwin's birthday. It 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 gives me the creeps. I mean, we have Jesus Day on the 21st and 25th of December. We have Darwin Day. I guess the next thing is to have Richard Dawkins Day. But, you know, I, as I say, that smacks to me too much of making Darwin into a kind of secular saint or something like that, a secular Jesus. And, you know, I don't think things work that way. So, I mean, you know, I just keep writing on these things. and. Basically, that's what I've come out now. In fact, I'm just doing a piece, actually, for somebody at Biola. That's the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. They've turned it into a university now. Uh, but I you know, I get all well with these. I mean, at a personal level, I have very good relationships with the creationists. I mean, in fact, I pride myself in the same year I contributed to the Feshrift to Richard Dawkins on the one hand and to the Feshrift of, of uh, Philip Johnson, the head of, you know, the chap who invented intelligent design theory. On the other hand, I mean, not many people would have contributed to both of those fresh riffs in the same year, but I did. And, you know, nobody thought, nobody thought there was any weird about it because everybody knows me that, you know, I, 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 I just don't have those kind of harsh positions like that. Yeah, basically, I find it very difficult to dislike human beings. Headmasters and university administrators accepted. I mean, no problem there. But <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, yeah, by and large, we're all, yeah, we're all on this earth, and we're, we're going to live, and then we're going to die. And if we're lucky, we get some good meals and some serious fucking in. And I'm not sure what more you could hope for. Yeah? I mean, unlike you, I don't need hair restorer. So, you know, I, I, I've got everything. and God really did look after me when I was born. So, Mark, you, I could never grow a beard like that. I have been trying since I was 19. I've, I've, I haven't shaved since I was 19, and it's about as wispy as they come. I mean, <laughs> you know, he-men like you. I mean, actually, I'm really surprised that somebody like you is here. I've got a feeling you ought to have, a you know, a toucan uh, and uh, those sorts of things, and a feathered thing and be in the Antarctic. I mean, well, this is what people, people like people who go to the Antarctic are people who look like you. I don't know whether they go to the Antarctic and then they look like this or they go to the Antarctic because they look like <laughs> this. But I, Yeah, I, I, I'm very surprised to see you sitting there in a studio rather than heading out, you know, into the into the snowy wastes.
0: Well, this is true. So
1: there you go. I mean, that that's basically where I'm at now.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much. That. that was, that was incredible. I kind of um, just, just going kind to of keep asking questions. That's okay. Cause this is absolutely amazing. Um, how would you, how would you then describe um, the kind of um, the, the things about, christianity or or i guess we could just go with religion as a whole um which for you just seem to be that step too far is it is it kind of like this the supernatural claims or is it the sort of metaphysics claims what what, what is it about religion that kind of makes you go well, that isn't actually something i could i could put my kind of um my, my my hat into the ring for
1: well i mean i think at one level i think it's improbable let's put it this way without being harsh that jesus christ really was uniquely the son of God I mean I mean I I mean obviously logically he could have risen from the dead but I don't think it's very likely that he did and it seems to me an awful lot of the miracles like the miracle at Cana turning water into wine Hmm. is much more easily expressed by saying when Jesus that Jesus was there and obviously he was a charismatic figure and he you know the, the, the host felt so ashamed uh, that when you know when jesus remarked on it that he went down to the cellar and got out the good wine that he hadn't intended to bring up uh, so you know and in a way i think that's a much more meaningful story mm. than abracadabra although it would be nice to be able to do that uh, so i i there's that the other thing which wanted which if you would ask me to that level is less the whole question of miracles and more the question of of what the you know uh, multicultural or pluralism, I mean, why should the Christians be right and the Buddhists be wrong? I mean, you've got somebody who's born in parts of India or in Tibet, and they grow up, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, and they can be at least, I mean, no question, they're at least as sincere as Christians can be.
0: Yeah.
1: And also, let's face up to it, Buddhism is a deeply moral system, you know, it, it really does have at least as many moral claims, uh, prohibitions or you know, encouragements as Christianity does. Uh, I look at this and I say, why should I say that Pope Francis, who it seems to me is as good as any, why should I say that Pope Francis is thereby right and the Dalai Lama is wrong? If I'd been born in Tibet, I'd be a Buddhist. If I'd been born in Italy, I'd be a Roman Catholic. Now, you know, uh, but the, the but the Dalai Lama, I mean, if I say he's an atheist, that's a bit misleading because he probably they do believe in orders of gods, but they certainly don't believe in a creator god uh, in that sort of way. So obviously, he's atheistic at that sort of level, uh, in a way that the um, that the Pope is not but then i say to myself looking at the two why on earth should it just so happen to be that the one area in which i was born was the right one mm. and everybody else was wrong you know uh, yeah you know the, the it is savage bows down to you know, wooden stone but you know we know you know we know it all i mean it it mm. it, it just doesn't work that way now having said that it seems to me It's still open to the possibility for somebody, I'm not sure I would want to say this, but somebody like John Hick would say this. Well, maybe Hick would say, these are different ways of getting at the same unknown. That uh, at some level, there's clearly something there. It isn't all chance. And we'd like to think that there's really something there, which is creatively good. But uh, what that is, Well, there are different cultural ways of getting at it. Now, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was not the Son of God? Well, I suppose it does at one level. What I'm saying is, you know, if I were a believer, I don't think I'd necessarily feel that I was inauthentic if I didn't become a Buddhist rather than a Christian. I could well say something like this. I grew up with Christianity, let's say Quakerism, or let's say Anglican. Hmm. I love the ser- I love the service. I love the rhythm of the service. i I love I love you know the whole tempo of it. and i I you know, let's say, very liberal Anglicans. I feel I've, I'm very empathetic to the overall social ideals that they've got. That you know, women should be ministers, and that uh, we should embrace gays and bring them into our community. Mm. And that you know, at a time like this with the pandemic, we've got obligations to our neighbours, and maybe we could open a food, you know, a food bank or something like that. Now, if somebody says that's my culture, I'm not going to say to them no, you really ought to spend your time being a Buddhist six months of the year or something. Now, I think you've got an obligation to try to understand other religions. I mean, obviously Jews, and more and more, I think we'd all say Muslims. I mean, I personally would like to see comparative religion as part of high school classes. I mean, I think that, you know, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it, but I could see saying, but you know, if this is what you're comfortable with, uh, why would you change it? Uh, whether, now, whether or not Jesus really was the Son of God, but I think even there you could start to say, well, of course, yes, he was, but we're not quite sure what, quite what that means. I mean I, could, I mean, I could see somebody saying that. Yes, at some level, I think probably Jesus was particularly gifted. I don't quite know what that means. He obviously got a message, which he passed on, I'd be uncomfortable saying that somehow Jesus was special and different from other human beings. But, you know, that, that's not quite as important to me. Uh, but I'd be perfectly happy, you know, to go through the, the old rituals at, at Easter and that sort of thing. Why wouldn't one? I mean, why wouldn't one? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're comforting. We're humans. We like these sorts of things. So I don't feel, you know, I... I Yeah, I'm pretty ecumenical at that sort of thing. I mean, as I say, I do feel that we have an obligation to understand other religions. I mean, obviously, you know, anti-Semitism and that sort of thing. I want to understand, you know, exactly where Jews are coming from, just as I particularly would want to understand Israel and the whole move into the West Bank and the influence of American evangelicals on that and, and that sort of thing. So, as I say... I mean, I think we've got obligations to understand other religions and I I think we are well treading on dangerous ground here I think you've got the obligation to criticize them at times I mean I think there's aspects obviously it's Islam that I don't find very attractive I mean yeah. you know say what you like I think that, you know the status of women leaves much to be desired um I really do I mean uh, so th- there's a case in point on the other hand you know, circumcision, dear Christ, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't impose it on my kids. But, you know, if it's something important to people, you know, female circumcision's a different matter. But, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think one tries to be tolerant without uh, necessarily being, um, you know, just indifferent. I think that's the way I'd want to put it. I mean, I think there's a difference between saying, I don't care. But uh, I, there are things where I feel we've got to have a bit of leeway in what people can do and what people should be able to do. I mean, I feel any warmth to anybody who voted for Brexit, uh, but you know what I mean, even them, I, you know, there are, not all of them are as evil as, I, as I'm as i inclined to think they are. <laughs> you know, I think that's more a case of stupidity, but there you go, don't get me going on that or get me going on Donald Trump and I'll never <laughs> shut up. So, So that, you know, basically, that's how I feel about these things. I mean, I try. You know, at it, it, one level, it almost sounds as though I'm saying, "Well, I'm not really caring about these. I care about them a lot, and I do care about the whole question of is there something beyond?" I mean, more and more, when I say I'm an agnostic, I'm with J.B.S. Haldane, who said, "Not only is the world queerer than I can think it, than I think it is, it's queerer than I can think it is." And I'm inclined to think that. I mean, I don't think we've solved the body mind problem, and things like quantum entanglement you know, where information can be transmitted across the universe in, immediately. We haven't got any idea how that happens. Mm. So it, it doesn't mean to say I think God's on the other side, but it does mean to say that my non-belief is a very active and positive non-belief rather than an indifferent non-belief. And I'm, in a way, I'm very attracted to what, what is known as apophatic Theology—it's big in in the Eastern world—is where you you can't say what God is, but you can say what God is not, and uh, you know, there's something to be said to that. You can say clearly God is not, you know, a shit. Uh, but what that what the opposite of non-shit exactly means, I'm not quite sure. I mean, obviously, if God is good, is goodness is not exactly like ours if he allows Auschwitz. So. You know, how do you wrestle with Auschwitz and God being good and all powerful? Wow, yeah. So, I mean, I think if you want to say, yes, I, but nevertheless, I feel there's something there. Um, I don't want to say you're wrong, but I, I as I say, I, I'm more inclined to say not that you're wrong, but that it's unknowable at some sort of level. I mean, you know, in a way it comes back to my, my, you know, childhood Christianity because Quakers are big into mysticism or you know a lot of them have been so i find that you know coming back as it were doesn't mean to say i'm coming back to jesus but it does mean that i'm certainly you know i just don't know i mean if you ask me to bet on it i probably i'd say probably i think that when i die it's going to be dreamless sleep you know for all eternity um mm. like it was i think before i was born but yeah uh, i I don't think I could say that with any deep, deep convictions. And if it turns out otherwise, then I'll be be surprised. But on the other hand, if it turns out that when I get to the other side, you know, Franklin Graham is in charge of things, then I'm going to be a little bit upset, but there you go. Uh, why are you a bit to, to throw it back from them why are you doing this series what's a night a tech guy from the university of leeds uh, doing doing a series like this i mean why aren't you doing online courses about you know bigger and better you know ways of te- te- helping people teach online courses during pandemics
0: so it's, it's a great question um basically i i was a I was born and born and raised in a, in a kind of evangelical um Christian family and um was kind of on my way to becoming a elder at a church um here here in Halifax actually and ended up having a a, a big kind of question of my faith and ended up kind of walking away from Christianity and deconverting deconstructing whatever sort of language you kind of want to use um, and I kind of realized that as I began to leave religion i very quickly became very um dogmatic about other things like atheism and new atheism yeah. and scientists and all this sort of stuff and i kind of realized that actually I, i've just latched myself onto something else and i what, what i wanted to start doing was to kind of ask well what what's the other side of this non-belief yeah. look like and that's why i kind of engage people like you and trying to work out um how this all mm-hmm. works obviously n- nothing to do with it whatsoever but uh, I definitely find this stuff far more interesting, especially how how the human mind works, what wh- why we think things are true, why why we seek truth, how we kind of get to the truth. These things are absolutely massive subjects.
1: Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, no, I, I think that's uh, I think that's just fine. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, in a way, I, I, I'm certainly glad I did not grow up either as an evangelical or as a you know deeply committed Roman Catholic. I mean, because I think then moving away from it would be a lot more traumatic than moving away from Quakerism. And as I, you know, I could really see that somebody say who'd been an evangelical and who felt suddenly that none of it worked, that for them, it really would be a Saul on the road to Damascus experience in reverse, because obviously you're leaving a particular mind frame and obviously at the same time, community as well, don't forget. The way that these things work, whether it's a, you know, a a monastery or whether it's an evangelical, you know, choir or whatever is because you do have this sort of in group sort of, uh, you know, thing going on and you're part of the community and others are outside. And I could see leaving this could be not only an intellectual, uh, um, what shall I say? crisis, but also an emotional, personal family sort of crisis, which, as I say, being a Quaker, that never was there. That was never there because, you know, when I was about 17, you know, I was asked if I wanted to join the society. And I said, I don't think I'm quite ready to make that decision yet. And, you know, the older Quakers said, we understand. That's fine. If you ever, and they never came to me again, they said, if you ever want to come and talk to us about it, we're here, you know. It, you know, we're here to help you, but um, it's your decision, not ours. And that, that was the way it is. And, you know, when I became a non-believer, you know, i never got any letters from, you know, people I'd known saying, Michael, Michael, I'm so distressed to hear or anything like that. No, it, that, it didn't work that way. You know, it didn't work that. I mean, if they'd heard, for instance, I was now going to advocate for capital punishment and that uh, sodomites should be castrated, they'd have been very worried. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that that wasn't how it happened anyway. So, um, uh, yeah, I think they might might have been more worried if I'd become an evangelical. Uh, but by and large, you know, Quakers don't become evangelicals. Uh, so, you know, that's the way it is. So, no, I, but I could see somebody like you, it could be a, a much, I won't say more important, because I think what I've been doing, is very important yeah but I could see that it's let's say a lot more stressful uh, in a way than it has been for me I mean for me it you know so much of it I mean I've been at it now for 80 years so you know it, it it's always been evolution as I move from one phase to another to another and to another and um, I'm pretty comfortable with you see after the Arkansas trial back in what 81 then a number of liberal Christians asked me, they run a little society, the Institute for Religion in an Age of Science, which meets every year on one of the islands off New Hampshire. Isles of... And I, I wouldn't, I haven't gone every year, but in the last 40 years, I've been going on a fairly regular basis. So, and I like having a week with the, I mean, they're, they're, they're either Unitarians or what they call the United Church of Christ, UCCs, or that sort of liberal Christians. I feel very comfortable with these people I, and on, I mean they go they have you know they like to go to chapel and that sort of thing uh, and I don't I mean they like to carry the you know the lanterns up the hill to the church <laughs> yeah you know, I, I I don't need to do that uh, <laughs> but at the same time you know we we're very, all very comfortable about where where we stand and although you know clearly I mean there's a variety of them from you know, I don't know what Unitarians believe anymore, but certainly, you know, some of them are fairly, you know, literal Christians, and um, and but never a feeling that somehow we're not on the same path together, and that's how I that's how I like to regard it in a way is obviously there's going to be differences differences in belief, but at some level can see that one is part of a band of seekers on a route like that, which do distinguish you from those who know the answer, like evangelicals like Franklin Graham on the one hand, and I presume somebody like Pope Francis on the other hand, or at least some of those, you know, farther right-wing Roman Catholics that hmm. you've got in America who are absolutely convinced of this, that, and the other, and you know, that abortion is wrong, and you know gays are, you know uh, yeah i uh, uh, that, those are the that, that's the the sides that i try to avoid because I, I do think though that there's a group of us in the middle who are as i say seekers rather in a way and it our life is always going to be one of seeking you know <laughs> the journey is more important than the destination and i feel i feel a bit that way i mean i think if ever i felt that i got the truth and that was it from now on. I don't know I think i'd I'd be dead. <laughs> well, I will be. <laughs> so how does that go, Sam?
0: Yeah, that's really, really helpful. I think. This is such a it, it is such a big part of my life now to, um, begin to embrace this journey. I think because I was so as as you were saying then, I was so certain and, um, preaching and teaching that certainty to other people, um, that now I'm reflecting on my certainty back then and kind of how how I could have possibly believed that was the 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 literal truth about everything, and you know speaking, I mean, I spoke to um spoke to uh, Alistair McGrath um a couple of weeks ago, and you know he was talking about his his. Belief and his faith, and how um, nothing is for certain, but it's very much a, a kind of a broader like Christianity for him is is a broader picture that gives him the sort of landscape which which he can then live within. And I kind of I kind of understand that Christianity, but um, you, you can't know it's true. Um, so I think it, I think just think it's really really important to begin to uh, ask these questions and to and as you, as you mentioned to keep pushing forwards in this journey and working out where where things go.
1: Now, now Alistair McGrath is keen on C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I have to tell you. I cannot stand those fucking Narnia books. I mean, <laughs> magic wardrobes are not my cup of tea. I grew up on Amazon swallows and Amazons, you know, middle- class kids boating in the lake district. Yeah, I can live with you know, people on boats. I can't live with people in magic wardrobes) <laughs>
0: That's amazing. Yeah, it's true. Like, uh, yeah, I think I think. so C.S. Lewis for me was 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 a massive uh, a massive part of my belief system. Um, his his kind of um, what was it that is the it's the argument for reason that that kind of really um, got me and, and still does get me to this day. Actually, this 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 idea that oh can-
1: no, I mean, I, as a kid, I read the Screw Tape Letters. Those were very popular. You know, uh, I no, I I I'm not really I'm not knocking C.S. Lewis, but uh, as I say. The Narnia books are a step beyond me.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Absolutely. I, mean, I, was, I was going to ask you, so if 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 you were to talk to someone like me, obviously which you are, and you know, I would say kind of what 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 of your books or your kind of um, resources would you point me to to begin to kind of journeying this stuff through a little bit more?
1: Well, I've just written a long paper actually for this chap. By all, I haven't sent it to you, have I? I said, I've written a long paper. No. I can, I'll I'll send that to you as soon as as soon as we finish talking. And that would be a start. And a, a, a book I've got coming out uh, with with uh, Cambridge, uh, probably in the new year. I'll send you that. And why don't you read those, or as much as you can, and then if you want to get back to me, do this again, we could do it sometime in the new year. How does that sound?
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Oh, no, not at all. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not being paid to do it anymore. But, you know, this is what I do for a living. I mean... <laughs> You, know, you don't have to apologize to me for doing this sort of thing. I mean, you know, I've, I've been 55 years of philosophy professor and I love it. I mean, hmm. first day I walked into class, I knew that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I mean, wow. you know, so I, you're not hearing somebody complaining. I mean, sometimes you get damn tired. Of course you do. Uh, but, um, yeah, no. All right, then, uh, what we'll do then is, uh, I'll send you these things as soon as I close down now. And, uh, why don't you get in touch with me sometime in January and see if you want to take it any further? How does that sound?
0: Sounds fantastic. I'll talk to you then.
1: All right, then. Well, have a good Christmas or whatever it is that your p- present faith position allows you to have.
0: <laughs> Likewise.
1: I don't, I don't suppose your kids are going to be, appreciate it when you say, kids, I've decided I don't believe in Jesus. There'll be no Christmas in our house. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't think I'll get away with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, then, son i'll talk to you again okay bye-bye
0: take care bye now well there we go and i hope you enjoyed that episode this is just to say that you can find links to us on social media patreon or the blog directly below We would absolutely love to hear from you as your comments and suggestions help to drive this podcast forwards. So please reach out and until next time, this is Sam signing off for When Belief Dies.